step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing, and now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino-style games to choose from, with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. A schooner set off from the port of Alexandria which at the time was a part of the District of Columbia. Alexandria was later retroceded back to Virginia in 1846. This schooner set sail for Antigua. At this time, Antigua was known for its sugar industry. Schooners were used to transport goods and people, or slaves, for trade. Slavery had been abolished in Antigua at this time, however. It is not known what this schooner had been carrying, nor what it intended to pick up. We do know who was aboard this sailboat, the Sarah Livonia, though. When it set sail, aboard were a cook, a master, or captain, a mate, otherwise known as the first mate, and three seamen. Two weeks later, the schooner was sighted on the high seas of the North Atlantic Ocean, with its sails down, seemingly adrift. A sloop named the Fairhaven came upon the Sarah Livonia, and a crew member boarded it. Only four men were found aboard. The 32-year-old master, Charles A. Dearborn, and the mate, Walter A. Nickel, who was about 10 years younger, were both missing. The vessel was less than 20 miles from a lighthouse nearest the port of New York. The Fairhaven crewman found an axe near the cabin door, four feet of water in the hold, and blood on a coil of rope. He also found a bloody fur cap on the deck. What transpired aboard this sailboat led to what I believe is the first no-body homicide charge and conviction in the United States. The arresting officer, William O. Russell, stated in his deposition that one of the crewmen told him that he and another crew member were asleep below deck. He stated that another crew member, known as Babe, was alone with the mate on night watch. Suddenly, Babe came to rouse them and told them that the captain and the mate had a fight and had gone overboard. Babe then took over captaining the vessel, stating he knew the way to Antigua. But then he steered them somewhat aimlessly to various other places, and at some point during this time, Babe roused the cook from his sleep and, quote, split his skull with a mallet. Another witness in the subsequent trial of Babe and the two other crew members, stated that he knew the mate of the ship, and he knew that the mate wore a gold watch. 
It was later shown in court, through the testimony of a New York jeweler with a shop on Broadway, that Babe sold a similar watch to him, with the reasoning that he needed to pay his boarding house bill. Essentially, the prosecution needed to make the case that the master and the mate were intentionally thrown overboard by the crewmen. Based upon testimony of the witnesses, some physical evidence, but also specifically that there was no proof that their bodies were seen after their deaths. This all should lead the reasonable person to conclude that the master and the mate are dead and that the cause of their deaths was intentional homicide. In the United States versus Brown, in the Circuit Court of the Southern District of New York, the finding was that, quote, the law does not now require direct proof of the killing or that a body was afterwards found, end quote. In other words, corpus delecti, or concrete evidence of a crime, is not required to prove that a killing occurred. The court instructed the jury that the evidence was admissible to prove the death of master and mate by drowning. The jury found all three to be guilty, and they were condemned to be executed. One committed suicide, one was executed, and the third, a youth, was pardoned. This information I obtained from a media source at the time of this trial, which I believe to be in 1843. It is believed that at least two of the crew members were not skilled sailors, but implied that they were. As the Sarah Livonia sailed along, the captain discovered their evident lack of experience, and he wrote in the ship's logbook about the men. In fact, the last log was, quote, those two men are incapable of doing duty as seamen. End quote. Welcome to Unsolved Podcast. I'm your host, Heidi Galore. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. For this episode, I analyzed cases in Maryland involving homicide in which no remains were found prior to prosecution. I assumed that most cases had likely gone forward due to a confession, but this isn't the case. Many had enough circumstantial evidence for the case to go to trial and for a jury to find each defendant guilty. Most often, a defendant was convicted of second-degree murder. The kind of evidence presented in each case varied widely. More recent cases involved cell tower records, phone and text records, and video image files. One case involved forensic evidence revealing that the victim had lost a significant amount of blood, enough so that the prosecution posited through expert witness testimony that the victim would not likely have survived. Most often, however, the case was proven via a painstakingly detailed picture painted by the prosecution, showing the victim was there one day, had obvious future plans, and then was gone without any other reasonable explanation other than that they'd been killed. This kind of a case may take a long time to solidify, as all possibilities need to be investigated. 
If the victim was reported missing by the suspect, investigators have to sort through the statements given to discover the lies and see past them. Often, a suspect will try to create distance between themselves and the actual date of the incident by waiting until they have to report the victim missing, if they ever do. In many cases, other friends or family are the ones who sound the alarm. They may have a hard time convincing law enforcement to take a report, or even to take them seriously, as they may not be able to translate their concern into something an investigator will see to be reasonable suspicion of foul play. You've probably heard it said that adults are allowed to go missing. And yes, sometimes people do strange things. People walk away and start anew elsewhere and are found years later alive and generally well. The difficult job of the investigator in cases of missing adults is spending enough time on the case to develop enough information to show there were suspicious circumstances so that they can justify continuing the investigation, of course while likely also balancing the rest of their caseload. In the early stages of this kind of an investigation, it is extremely important to study victimology, to establish routines, to discover the victim's known responsibilities and accomplishments that might involve others. Essentially, an in-depth intelligence gathering about the missing person. With that in mind, I'd like to tell you about Stephanie Marie Gant-Brady, known to her family and friends as Penny. When he spoke to the Baltimore Evening Sun in April of 1989, Penny's son described a dream he has often in which his mother appears. He said, she's always smiling, but she knows she's missing. In the dream, somebody always asks her, Penny, where have you been? She smiles, but she never answers. Penny Gant graduated from Frederick Douglass High School in Baltimore City. Listeners may remember this school as the backdrop for a part in the Baltimore Uprising on April 27, 2015. At that time, high school students from Frederick Douglass High School were blocked by police from crossing the street to go to the Mondawmin Mall, where they needed to go find transportation home. All the while, police told the students to go home. This overt police action, plus the heightened tension in the community caused by the murder of Freddie Gray, created the space for violence to erupt. Outside of this moment in modern history, this high school is a typical college and career prep school currently serving about 850 students. After graduation, Penny attended Morgan State University. The school had recently, in 1975, become designated as a university, authorized by this time to offer doctorates and have its own governing board. Today, Morgan State University is known for its research programs. It has been designated as Maryland's preeminent public urban research university, according to their website. It is Maryland's largest historically black institution, and awards more bachelor's degrees to African-American students than any campus in the state of Maryland. Before receiving a degree at Morgan State, Penny left the university and joined the Maryland National Guard as part of the first group of women to join in 1977. She was one of just three students to graduate officer candidate school as a second lieutenant. Then, in 1978, Penny Gant received news that altered the trajectory of her life. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. 
Her son told the Evening Sun that his mother didn't let that diagnosis get her down. He stated that the first thing she did after hearing the news, quote, was to go out, get her hair done, and then join a group to aid the disabled, end quote. And she didn't stop there. She served as a resource specialist for Baltimore citizens for housing for the disabled. She was also appointed by the governor to a two-year term on the Commission for Hiring the Handicapped, according to a 1989 article in the Evening Sun. In 1979, Gant returned to Morgan State and worked for five years to obtain her Bachelor of Arts degree in Sociology. During this time, she wrote a news column for the disabled for the local Baltimore newspaper, The Afro-American, which, as an aside, has proven to be one of the best sources of information for me when researching for this podcast. Penny also wrote the astrology page in a syndicated magazine called Dawn. She never stopped working. She coached a boys' basketball team, ages 11 and 12, and was an after-school recreation leader for children. After coaching, she worked as a substitute teacher at the elementary and junior high school level in Baltimore County. Her mother described her daughter as destined to be an overachiever in all she set out to do. She loved tennis, music, and attending concerts, and she always kept a positive attitude. The eldest of her two siblings, Penny was also described as a good daughter. Her son said she was also the perfect mother. She acted as an adoptive mother to many children and young people. She was truly loving and generous. As a single parent, Penny Gant joined a group called Parents Without Partners, where she made many new friends, attended meetings and social functions, and even with her diagnosis, she didn't let that physically stop her. She would dance and even roller skate as she was able. In 1984, the year Penny Gant disappeared, she had returned to college, this time for a master's degree at the University of Baltimore, whose campus is located in the Arts District next to Penn Station in the central area of Baltimore City. By this time, Penny's son was 15 years old and was attending Walbrook High School in the city. He decided, and was allowed to, move closer to the school and live with his grandmother. He last saw his mother on April 1st. 1984. He called to speak to his mother and was told by his mother's live-in boyfriend that she wasn't there, but then she never called him back. Each time her son called again, he was told the same thing, that she wasn't there. At one point, Penny's boyfriend told him that she'd gone to Atlantic City, but she had failed to keep a doctor's appointment. Her family called police to report her missing. They grew more alarmed when they found that she left behind her scooter-style wheelchair and medication that she depended on. When questioned by police, Penny's boyfriend stated that she'd gone to Pittsburgh to visit friends. But later he told police that she was in London working on a book and that she didn't want anyone to know where she had gone. But that made no sense to her family. She never would have gone anywhere like that without telling her son. When police looked into the boyfriend's latest version, they could find no evidence that Penny Gant had obtained a passport, and she never picked up her most recent paycheck. When her son and family were finally able to gain access to Penny's apartment, 
where her boyfriend had been staying and maintained access to, her belongings were gone. Even her diploma from Morgan State University. Her son told the Evening Sun that they had left the apartment in the 4600 block of Horizon Circle in the Woodlawn area of Baltimore with a couple of rugs and a couple of boxes that they had found in a storage shed. Police were never able to find any actual evidence at the apartment, but the lack of evidence and what little was left were still extremely suspicious. Police are certain that Penny Gant has met with foul play. Everything they've seen and have been told has added up to their belief that something sudden and tragic happened to her. Stephanie Marie Penny Gant Brady was last seen alive on April 8, 1984. She was 39 years old. She would be 73 years old today. She is described as a black female with brown hair and brown eyes. She is 5 feet 3 inches tall and was 110 pounds at the time of her disappearance. She was last seen wearing an opal ring and a small pinky ring with a diamond. If you have any information, however unrelated you think the information might be, about the disappearance of Penny Gant, you are urged to call the Baltimore County Police Homicide Unit's Unsolved Case Squad at 410-307-2020. You can also call Metro Crime Stoppers at 1-866-LOCKUP or 1-866-756-2567. You can even text your information to them at CRIMES, that's C-R-I-M-E-S, or 274-637, then enter your message after typing the letters M-C-S. There's up to a $2,000 cash reward for information. Penny's son told the Evening Sun that the hardest time for him is in October, when they both have their birthdays. He said she would be a grandmother to three children. The last words he spoke to his mother all those years ago were the words, I love you. He said his mother strongly believed that the last words spoken to your family and loved ones should be those three words. So you'll never regret not saying it. That's it for this episode. Unsolved Podcast will be at the True Crime Podcast Festival the weekend of July 11, 2020 at the Lowe's Hotel in Kansas City, Missouri. Listeners of this show can use the promo code UNSOLVED, that's U-N-S-O-L-V-E-D, at checkout for 10% off general admission tickets. Go to their website, truecrimepodcastfestival.com, for more information about the festival and to purchase tickets. Our promo code UNSOLVED expires on June 1st, so get them soon. That's truecrimepodcastfestival.com. As far as I know, even with all of the quarantine and other things happening, I think this is still on. You can check their website, though, for more updates. If the festival is still going on, I will definitely be there. I went last year when it was at Chicago, and I had an amazing time. I've been to CrimeCon before, um, but this festival was far better of an experience for me. I got to spend more time talking to listeners. I got to meet all the podcast hosts from the shows that I really enjoy listening to myself. I was even invited to speak on a panel about inclusivity. There were live episodes, crossover live episodes, and many more panel discussions. 
This year, the festival has been expanded to two full days, and all the activities will be better than before. All the shows you already love will be there, and tons of shows you might not have heard of yet will be there too. Meet and mingle with all your favorite podcasters, including me, if I'm still your favorite, after all of this, and get tons of free swag and attend exclusive live shows. I hope to see you there. I'll put links up on the website eventually, and the Facebook page, and all those other social media places, um, at unsolvedpodcast.com. You can find us on social media at unsolvedpodcast. Thank you for listening. And as a small treat, my almost three-year-old son has something he wants to tell you. See you later.